It was three days before the Super Bowl, 1997, and they were practicing for the halftime show, and the grand finale for this big extravaganza was going to be a, a bungee jump, a bungee jump from the top of the Superdome, the dome down there in New Orleans. Laura Patterson, a trapeze artist and expert, was the one who was going to be making the jump, but the one helping her, the one who was actually going to be handling the bungee cords was not an expert. So three days before the big show, because Laura wanted to make sure everything was going to be okay, she wanted to take one last practice jump. But the assistant, who was supposed to be helping, let out too much line, so when Laura made that jump, she had too much rope, and as a result, she hit her head on the turf of the Superdome, cracking her skull, dying instantly. Several days later, we learned the reason for the accident. The company that was in charge of this halftime show had recruited inexperienced people. The one that was supposed to be watching the line and helping Laura and making that jump never done anything like this before. It was his first time on the job. So the company gave him a quick two-minute course on how to manage a bungee cord. Two minutes? Two minutes? And that's not enough. When you're dealing with something dangerous like that, listen, there are some challenges in life that cannot, they just cannot be handled by amateurs. When Somebody else is holding the other end of the line. Your fate lies in their hands. The success of your mission depends upon their knowledge and skill. Then you have got to make sure that whoever it is that's holding the other end of the rope is somebody mature and experienced. You want a veteran watching out for you, or you're not going to make it safely through that crisis. Well, think of it like this. Here we are at the beginning of the football season. High school, college, pro, doesn't matter. We're reminded again and again of the difference between the veterans and the rookies. Here are the rookies, the new, player, new players, new guys eager to make a splash, uh, drafted because of their talent and skill, their speed, their athleticism, just astounding. I mean, we can't wait to see them get in the game and see what kind of impact they're going to make. But then over here are the veterans, guys who've been around for a while, older, slower, but wiser, too. And it's that experience that makes all the difference. I mean, how many times have you seen this happen? How many times have you seen a veteran team be the team that's younger and more talented? And why? Because once the game starts, things rarely go according to plan. You know, the first couple of times out there in the field, field uh, some bad calls are made, some careless turnovers begin to occur, and before you know it, you and your team are falling way behind. I mean, everything's just going south, and the rookie players are all in a panic mode. They're sulking, they're pointing fingers at each other, they're losing their cool, they're making all kinds of foolish mistakes. But the veterans, they don't wilt at the first sign of trouble. I mean, they, they know any game, there's going to be some miscues along the way, bad breaks, those things are bound to happen, but it's no reason to push the panic button. See, these guys have the confidence, we can still make a comeback. Hey, we've been in big holes before, wasn't in the end of the world, we can overcome this deficit, we can still pull this thing out. The veterans know you stick with a game plan, even if it doesn't seem to be working out right away, you stick with the plan. These guys, the veterans, they know how to win because they've got the scars and the trophies to prove it. Veteran leadership, it makes all the difference in the world. That's the kind of leadership God wants in his church. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's God talking about elders, the, the leaders in his church. And here he tells us what kind of men he wants in this leadership role. Let's see what he has to say. Now, right off the bat, whenever I come to a scripture like this, I'm just intrigued. Why is God giving these instructions? See, this church at Ephesus has been here for a while. Acts chapter 20 makes it clear they already have elders. I mean, they have had for a long time. So why do we need to go over these qualifications again? Because there's probably a, a problem here. You know, with all this talk that we have in 1 Timothy about false teachers and false teachings, maybe one of those false teachers has stepped in this leadership role, and they're now occupying a position they shouldn't. 
Or maybe over the years this church has become careless and they've forgotten about God's standards and they've just kind of opened it up to anybody. Hey, uh, we're missing some guys up here. Got any volunteers? Anybody want to sign up for the role of elder? And as a result, some people are really not qualified to take on that leadership role. What, whatever it may be, you can tell the Apostle Paul's concern. And say, hey, let's get back to the standards. Let's get back to what God wants, what God expects. Because what's being described here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a unique kind of leadership. See, being an elder in the church is not like leading any other organization. You know, you may be an officer in the Rotary Club or PTA or the local YMCA, and that's fine. Those are some wonderful groups that serve our communities in some extraordinary ways. So I'm not trying to put that down in any way. But you need to understand, you need to appreciate being an elder in the church, God's church. That's something special. That's, that, that, that's something unique. So, so it requires, it requires a, a special kind of leadership in, in that position. Men of maturity, men of integrity, men who are committed. I mean, and they've proven this over the years, men who are committed to following Jesus, even in the very toughest of circumstances. So to be given leadership, to be given oversight in this kind of community, this kind of special community, it's a sacred calling. And that's why not just anybody can assume this role. So take a look at what he says. The Apostle Paul says here, here's a trustworthy saying, meaning you can take this to the bank. Here's a fact that you can just always count on. You put the right kind of men in this leadership role, men of God, and you can have a healthy congregation. Those two just go hand in hand. Put the right kind of men in this leadership position, men of God, and you can have a really healthy church. Well, what does it mean to be a man of God? Well, notice it says, whoever aspires. I love that translation. Aspires. Because we're not just talking about any kind of desire here. We're talking about a strong, very intense kind of desire. In fact, the word itself, the word that is being used here, literally means to reach for. It means you're willing to stretch. And trust me, when you become an elder, your soul is going to get stretched. The tough decisions that you have to make and all the criticism you get because of making those tough calls. The long hours and the long meetings that you put in, where the agony that you go through and the sleep that you lose at night because you care so much about the people you're trying to help and the battles they're having to fight. All of that stuff can just eat you up and tear you apart unless you've got the right kind of heart, this intense passion where you want to care, you want to be a shepherd for God's flock. So whoever aspires, whoever is willing to stretch, I mean, they're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices so they can have this privilege, this honor to be, it says here, an overseer. Now here's one of the words that the Bible uses to describe this unique leadership role. Sometimes God will refer to these men as elders. Sometimes he refers to them as shepherds. But here God uses the word episkopos. And it literally means to keep watch over. It's a word that was sometimes used in the ancient world to describe a private tutor who was hired uh, to help a student. Here's a student, they're struggling, they're falling behind. Man, this subject's just about to, to get the best of math, history, science, whatever it is. Here's a topic that just baffles them. Man, it just doesn't compute, it's not making sense, and the, and the student's just feeling frustrated. But then this teacher comes along and says, I, I can help. And so for days and weeks and months, they just patiently remain there explaining and clarifying and breaking things down and making things, everything more understandable until at last the light comes on and it all begins to make sense. And now the student's able to do the assignment on their own. They're able to pass the class or they acquire school, a skill. They've got another tool in their toolbox where now they've got the capacity to be able to move on and experience a much better future for themselves. 
Or sometimes this word episkopos, to keep watch over, to be an overseer, was used to describe the activity of a soldier. Standing up on the city wall late at night, everybody else in town is sound asleep, but he's got his eyes wide open to make sure that no enemy takes them by surprise, that nobody slips into the city that's not supposed to be here. So this word, episkopos, to watch over, it means to guard and to care for, to protect and to provide so that God's people can keep moving in the right direction. And then the Apostle Paul takes it even deeper. You get down to verse 5, and Paul says, one of the ways you can tell, is this man ready to be an elder, a leader in God's church? Take a look at his home. How does he keep watch over his family? And the phrase that Paul uses there, the very last part of verse 5 says, to take care of God's church. That expression, to take care of, it's the same expression that Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, here's this guy taking a trip from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he gets mugged by a gang of thieves, and they beat him up, leave him half dead, lying there on the side of the road, when a Samaritan comes along. And he takes notice. I mean, here's a Samaritan. He's a busy man. He's got a thousand things that need to be done. But he willingly sets all of that aside so he can take care of this man, bandaging his wounds, putting him on the animal, taking him to an inn, paying for his stay, paying for his care. Like any good father, like any good elder, Here's the good Samaritan, good because he's willing to be inconvenienced by this man's problems so that he can keep watch over him. Now, right there, you stop, you pull back, you begin to realize the magnitude of this role. What a tall order it is. What a heavy responsibility. I mean, who's qualified to take on a leadership role like this? Well, keep something in mind, especially when you get to verses 2 through 7 and you read all these qualities, all these characteristics that an elder is supposed to possess. There's not one of these items, other than that one expectation, be able to teach. But other than that, there's not one item there that's not also required of all Christians. You know, it says here, elders are supposed to be hospitable and kind and caring. Well, you turn to other parts of the Bible and you see God expects all Christians to be hospitable and kind and caring. So, here's God hoping, here's God saying to us, he's hoping that one day all of his children will begin to look like this and live like this. So how do we get from here to there? How do we actually begin to live like that too? Well, we're children of God. How do children learn? We mimic. We imitate. We watch the people around us. It's how a baby learns to talk. They're listening to others. They're watching others. This is why a mother worries about her teenager and the kind of peer groups they're hanging around with because we tend to model the behavior of the people we spend time with. We do that as adults. We pick up accents and facial expressions. We pick up habits and hobbies because of the kind of people we're running with. So you want to live the right way, you've got to have the right kind of role models. And that's what God is asking of the elders, to be an example for us. Notice what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It says, remember your leaders, the ones who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. See, what qualifies a man to be an elder is not because he's got a Ph.D. and a superior IQ. It's not because he's got this powerful personality that takes him to the top of the business world and makes him a success in the community. No. What qualifies a man to be a leader in God's church is because in every facet of his life, he displays the character of Christ. He exemplifies the life of Jesus. Perfect? No. Well, they still make mistakes, lots of mistakes, but... In this man's life, you see a level of maturity. You see a growth and development in his walk with the Lord. He's far enough down the road, further than most of us, he's now far enough down the road where now he can become an example to us. 
Think of it like this. Think of your experience as a parent and how challenging that could be, you know, trying to help your children with the homework or trying to take care of a child when they're sick. And, boy, that gets overwhelming at times, right? <laughs> you want me to help you with the algebra? Algebra. Man, I'm no math whiz. I never got a degree in education. Help you with algebra. <laughs> I don't think I'm qualified for this. And yet, because you're the parent and they're the child and you're a little further down the road in your life experience, that night you sit down at the table and you do your best to help. And maybe in picking up that textbook, the instructions are going to make sense to you, whereas they didn't make sense to your son or daughter. I mean, you can't teach them everything, but at least maybe that night you can tell them enough where at least they can finish that exercise and get the homework done and go to the school the next day where the teacher can take them further still. Or your child gets sick and you think to yourself, man, I'm no doctor, I'm not qualified to care. But because you're the parent and they're the child, you know enough to pick up the medicine bottle and read the instructions and see how this is supposed to be taken. Okay, two teaspoons every four hours. Make sure they eat something before they swallow us. Well, hey, we can do that. I mean, only the doctor is qualified to prescribe the medicine, but you know how to follow the order, so you make sure the medicine is taken, taken the right way, the right time, so now that child gets back on the road to recovery, and they can start to get better again. That's elders. They're not perfect. They don't pretend to be, but they're far enough down the road, spiritually speaking, now they can become an example to us as we try to learn what it means to follow Jesus. So the one basic question, when you study the Scripture and you learn... The one basic question to ask, how do you know if this person's ready to be an elder, a leader in God's church? Well, think. What would happen to this church if everybody in this congregation began to imitate their example? Would it take us to a better place? Would it give us a better understanding, a better experience of what it really means to follow Jesus? I mean, would it be wise for us to follow the example that he sets in his home, the way he loves his wife, the way he cares for his children? Would it be wise for us to follow the example he sets and how he manages his money, how he gives and shares with others? Would it be wise for us to follow the example he sets in his personal walk with the Lord, how he reads the Bible, how he prays, how he talks to other people about Jesus? I mean, is there an example here that is worth following? Is there something here that as a church is going to bring us further down the road on what it really means to be a disciple who makes disciples? See, being an elder is a... It's a high-profile position. You are being watched all the time. It's not just, hey, does he act like an elder when he's here with the church, but also, does he act like an elder when he's driving the kids to school, when he's buying items at the grocery store, when he's sitting at the stands at the Little League game cheering for his grandson? grandson? I mean, what do we see then? How does he behave out there? Do we see an example there that's going to make us think of Jesus? That's why when you get down to verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, an elder cannot, cannot be a recent convert. There's no room for amateurs here. We need veteran leadership. Men who have walked with the Lord long enough. Yeah, they're still learning, still growing. We get that. Still learning, still growing. But these guys have been through enough trials. They've been through enough ups and downs. They've made enough mistakes along the way that now they can help us with our struggles too. Maybe the best way to summarize this, what does it really mean to be an elder, to be a leader in God's church? Maybe the best way to summarize it is just like Paul did. Down at the very last part of this chapter, verses 14 and 15, notice what it says. Paul says, Timothy, although I hope to come to you, you and all those people there in Ephesus, I'm hoping to get there soon, but I'm writing these instructions. I'm sending you this letter just in case. Because if I get delayed and it doesn't work out like I think, I want you to know, and everybody else in the church there at Ephesus, I want you to know how people are supposed to conduct themselves in God's household. 
What is the church? It's the church of the living God. It's a place where he lives, he dwells, he moves, he works. He makes himself known to the world around us. The church is supposed to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, if I'm living in Ephesus, it's those last words, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Those are the words. If I'm living in Ephesus where, you know, here's Timothy. He's reading this letter to us from the Apostle Paul. Those are the words that are going to jump out to me. Those are the words that are really going to hit home. Because Ephesus is a big place. It was the third largest city in the world at that time. I mean, all kinds of new construction going on, new buildings rising up everywhere, buildings of massive proportions. And because Ephesus is a place where it wasn't unusual to have an earthquake from time to time, that meant if you're going to build, you're going to have to build well. You're going to have to make sure that foundation is something strong and stable or the buildings won't last. So part of what made all this new construction so, such a marvel to behold was not only the size of the structures that were being put up, but the extraordinary measures that everybody was taking to lay a proper foundation. Well, there was one building in town that just stood out from all the rest. Hey, before you leave town, you've got to see this. You've you got to take a look. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was called the Temple of Diana. It's what the Romans called it, or the Greeks would call it the Temple of Artemis. Same thing. But there were two things that were striking about this building. Number one, the foundation. The stones that they used here were huge. I mean, of monumental size. Wow, no matter how big the earthquake, here's one building. It ain't moving. It's built to last. But the other impressive thing about this temple, the Temple Diana, were the pillars. There were 127 pillars in this temple, each pillar six stories high, used to support this massive roof that was made out of pure mar marble. I mean, it was just a glory to behold. So the pillars there to hold everything in place. But the, the, then the other interesting thing about the pillars were that each pillar was a beautiful work of art, uniquely and exquisitely designed so as to catch your eye and want to draw you in. Wow. If the pillars are that beautiful, I wonder what the rest of the temple looks like. Let's go in and take a look. The pillars were like a, a giant display window, one of those enormous department stores we used to see downtown, you know, built so as to catch your attention and bring in so you want to participate in the activities that were occurring inside that temple. That's what God wants from the leaders of the church, men who become pillars of truth. They not only speak the truth, they live it. Every day, in every possible way, they're taking the truth of Jesus and they're putting it on display. And they do it in such a beautiful way, it causes other people to say, hey, I, I want a life like that too. Can you tell me something more about Jesus? I mean, it's obvious. Jesus is the one who makes the difference for you. Can you tell me something more about him? Because I want to learn how to follow him too. Let's pray.